Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today attorneys Jeff Eden and Lloyd Birdstein from the law firm of Bullevent Hauser Bailey PC in Portland, Oregon. Jeff is a shareholder in charge of their Portland office and a co-chairman of the firm's products liability group. He has gained extensive trial experiences in various practice areas, including professional liability and catastrophic injury. Jeff also advises product manufacturers, distributors, and sellers on risk management strategies. Lloyd Bernstein's practice focuses on litigation with an emphasis on insurance coverage disputes and bad faith lawsuits. Mr. Bernstein also has extensive experience litigating all types of general, business, and commercial torts. He leads the firm's liability insurance coverage practice group and is a member of the firm's diversity committee. Jeff and Lloyd, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Today's topic is an Oregon Supreme Court ruling and a medical malpractice case against Oregon Health Sciences University and the impact on tort cap protections for public entities in the state of Oregon. I also want to mention today that the answers to these questions reflect the personal opinions of Mr. Eden and Mr. Bernstein and not the opinions of their law firm or their clients. Brendan Noonan will start off with today's first question. Okay, uh, Jeff, can you talk about the significance of this ruling? I think in order to understand the significance of the ruling, we need to have a little context. And let me just tell you a little bit about that case first. As you mentioned, this is a medical malpractice claim, and it was filed against Oregon Health Sciences University, or so-called OHSU. OHSU is Oregon's only teaching hospital, and it is indeed a state-created entity. The plaintiffs in that case also sued the individual health care providers for the plaintiff's child who was injured. When that lawsuit was filed, the university filed an answer in which they admitted that they had provided negligent care to the child and that as a result of that negligence, the child was injured. They also did not contest the plaintiff's allegations that the child had approximately $17 million in damages as a result of that negligence. The university relied on a defense premised upon the Oregon Tort Claims Act, and there are two important pieces to understand about that act in order to put this case into context. The cap does two things. First, it limits the recovery that a plaintiff can make against a public body to $200,000. In another provision, it requires that plaintiffs with a claim against a public entity must sue only that entity and must dismiss any claims against the entity's employees or agents. And that's what happened in this case at the trial court level. The judge required that the plaintiff dismiss as to the employees and agents and pursue a claim against OHSU only. The plaintiff appealed the ultimate judgment that was entered and reduced to $200,000. They claimed that the procedure of dismissing the claim against the individual defendants violated Oregon's remedy clause, or what some refer to as the open court clause. In Oregon, that's Article 1, Section 10. We have had a series of cases from the Oregon Supreme Court interpreting that remedy clause. And it's been pretty consistent in holding that the remedy clause here in Oregon is a guarantee that in the event of an injury, a plaintiff is entitled to a remedy, at least as that remedy existed in common law at the time the remedy clause was passed. That was back in 1857 here in Oregon. So the analytical framework, and this came from a case called Smothers, was to ask first whether the legislative procedure or rule abolished a common law remedy that was available 
to a protected interest? And if so, did the legislature provide for a constitutionally adequate substitute remedy? Now, you have to understand also that there was no question, at least in the court's mind, that Oregon Health Sciences University would have been immune at common law, and therefore the Tort Claims Act, as applied to the claims against OHSU, were constitutionally permissible. But the court also noted that employees were not immune from these types of claims at common law, and therefore, by eliminating the plaintiff's remedy against the individual employees, and instead requiring a substitute remedy against the public entity with a cap of $200,000, they believe that to be an emasculated version of the remedy that would have been available to the plaintiff at common law. Now, the court was very careful in choosing its language in saying that under the facts of this case, the Tort Claims Act, as applied, was unconstitutional. And that means, then, the significance of this case for those practicing in Oregon is that the Tort Claims Act is still effective. It's still constitutional, but not under the facts of that particular case in the Clark versus Oregon Health Sciences University. Lloyd, was this ruling a surprise? No, it really wasn't to most practitioners. Both constitutional law and appellate colleagues tell us that they saw it coming for a long time. And us trial practitioners, the damages cap and medical malpractice case has been on the radar for quite some time. And really, the question, as it was looked at, when you go back on a broad sense, it kind of develops this classic age-old battle of how much deference should be given to the legislative when it comes to tort reform. And that has been an ongoing debate here in Oregon and across the nation. And plaintiffs asserting remedy clauses, or some other jurisdictions call it open courts clause of their constitution, as challenges to tort damages caps is not new. And there's long precedents of both success and cases where those challenges have failed. More specifically here in Oregon, as Jeff had mentioned, and the Clark decision kind of dissects is the history of the Oregon Supreme Court and sort of grappling with the tort damages cap since its inception back in 1967. And the Oregon Supreme Court has been somewhat critical, and they have focused in on this substantial remedy language for quite some time. And I'll comment on some of the older cases that have challenged where the challenge of uh, Article One, Section 10 Remedy Clause to the OTCA damages cap has been both successful and not to kind of give the roadmap that the Oregon Supreme Court has been following. The first case that addressed this challenge was Hale versus Port of Portland. And that was back in 1987, and that was when the damages cap was at $100,000. In that case, briefly, the plaintiff sued the city and the Port of Portland for injuries sustained because of a failure to maintain a public road. The damages in that case were $600,000, and the cap was $100,000. And the Oregon Supreme Court held, as applied, it did not violate the remedies clause because there was a substantial remedy available. They looked at the $600,000 in damages awarded versus a $100,000 cap, and found that uh, that was a substantial remedy. And this really was the first signs of how the Supreme Court was going to analyze these challenges and their focus in on the substantial remedy language. The next case the Supreme Court looked at, where it looked at the Article One, Section 10 challenge, uh, was in Nahar versus Chartier, uh, which was 1994. That was a challenge to the workers' comp damages cap and a certain component of the workers' comp damages cap. In that case, a plaintiff's daughter, who was a public employee, was killed by a TriMet bus. The plaintiff brought a wrongful death suit against TriMet and the bus driver. And under the workers' comp statute at the time, all there was was a $3,000 burial benefit available to the decedent's estate. 
that went up to the Supreme Court, and it held on its face that violated the remedies clause because it did not provide for a substantial remedy that the decedent's parents would have otherwise been entitled to under the wrongful death statutes against the individual employee, in other words, the bus driver. So again, they focused in on the substantial remedy language. As a sort of side note, the court later disavowed that decision in Storm v. McClung in 2002 on the grounds that the Article One, Section 10 only affords protection for injuries which a cause of action existed back in common law back in 1857. But it was still, it's still instructive on how the court was looking at these remedy clause challenges. The next case was Greist versus Phillips in 1995, and this was an Article One, Section 10 remedies clause challenge to the wrongful death damages cap. In that case, the jury awarded $100,000 in economic damages and $1.5 million in non-economic damages, which were reduced to the $500,000 cap for wrongful death cases. Only the non-economic damages were reduced. Under the wrongful death statute in Oregon, plaintiffs are entitled to recover their economic damages. In that case, the Supreme Court held, as applied, the wrongful death substitute remedy was constitutional. The $600,000 total remedy that was awarded was substantial and basically found two grounds. One, Oregon wrongful death awards are historically low. And two, the statute did not have and does not have limitations on economic damages. So again, they focused in on the substantial remedy language. The next case Jeff touched on briefly in his opening was Smothers versus Gresham transfer. And that was a challenge to the workers' comp statutory scheme as well. While it did not tackle the remedies clause challenge directly, it did comment that the legislature may alter common law remedies but may not substitute an emasculated remedy that is incapable of restoring the right that has been injured. So as Jeff commented, Clark essentially borrowed that language almost verbatim in its holding. And the last case instructive on this analysis was in 2002, Jensen versus Whitlow, where the Supreme Court addressed in Article One, Section 10 facial challenge as opposed to as applied to the damages cap. In that case, the plaintiff brought suit against the state and foster parents, alleging that the foster parents abused their daughter while in the custody of Child Services Division. And in that case, the court held the damage cap was constitutional because damages caps in general are not necessarily implicated in every case, and damages in this particular case have not yet been determined. So the court has been focused for some time on the substantial remedy language and the analysis that ensues. And when you look at the facts of this case, you have $12 million in undisputed damages. You had a $200,000 award under the Tort Claim Act cap, which was essentially less than 2% of the damages. And at common law, the plaintiffs would have had a claim and, in fact, sued the individual public employees. So the holding here by the Supreme Court was not really a surprise, particularly when you look at the analysis that they've been following for quite some time. Now, Lloyd, Oregon's OHSU has called for government intervention. What impact could this have? Well, the impact could be significant both legally, politically, economically, but focusing on the legal implications and sort of the political undertow of that. Legally, it may get the Oregon legislature to revisit the tort cap that's in place. In 2007, there was a a Senate bill, Senate Bill 280, that was considered by the Senate Judiciary Committee, but it did not advance. And Senate Bill 280 was specifically addressed to look at the cap and the uh, Oregon Tort Claim Act itself. The reason why it wasn't advanced, or at least what was articulated in the record, was that they were waiting for this Clark decision, waiting to see what the Supreme Court did. And also, they had concerns on how the cap would be adjusted. The bill called out for automatic adjustments tied to the Consumer Price Index, 
and the record testimony showed that there were people that were concerned about these automatic adjustments as opposed to a legislative fixed adjustment. So that bill never made it out. There is reports out of Salem, Oregon, capital, that there's a supplemental session this year in February of 2008, and that they may consider raising the maximum amount for jury awards under the Tort Claim Act as a result of the Clark decision. So it, it may get the legislature to revisit the cap. And the other impact is it may force other government entities, the police, school districts, etc., and really the legal community as a whole to really hone in on the implications of the Clark decision and its effect on the cap. As Jeff pointed out, the court held that the cap was only unconstitutional as applied to the particular facts of this case, that it was not per se unconstitutional. And there's been the immediate aftermath of the decision. There's been some discussion as to what is the full scope of the decision and how it may apply. I think the Justice Bomber's concurrence is helpful in that it suggests that the cap on its face withstands constitutional muster. Justice Bomber suggested that and strongly refuted plaintiff's argument that any tort claim limit would be unconstitutional when applied to a plaintiff whose damages exceed the cap and referred, mentioned that the legislator can impose caps so long as the caps don't deprive plaintiff of a substantial remedy. So really it will force people to take a look at the full implications of what this decision means. Okay, now I was asking for government intervention, a frequently used strategy. It's an interesting question. A frequently employed strategy, probably not, but cases like this where legislative statutes and schemes are being challenged, it's not unusual, particularly under the circumstances and import of this case. It probably makes good sense. The legislator created the Tort Claim Act, and the court limits what the legislator is permitted to do, so you have your normal checks and balances between the two systems. So it's not unusual. And again, here it was held that it was unconstitutional as applied and not on its face. So it did not strike down the rationale that the legislator used to come up with the cap, but simply found that it did not provide a substantial remedy for this particular plaintiff. So one could expect that the legislature to go back and try and craft a bill in a way that would be constitutionally permissible. Again, I would refer back to Justice Bomber's concurrence, where he actually makes the suggestion, provides the rationale. Justice Bomber states, the limit on remedy available to plaintiff here should have been increased long ago by the legislature, and the legislature should take this opportunity to reconsider the appropriate tort claims act limits for medical malpractice claims. And then Justice Bomber goes on to state, the arbitrarily low cap on damages for medical malpractice claims against OHSU and its employees is a problem that has long called for a legislative solution. So Justice Bomber suggests to OHSU and the others involved to actually go back and get the legislature to look at it. And when you look at the history of the Tort Claim Act itself, it has taken on different versions and amendments based on folks coming back to the government. It was first created in 1967, basically putting a monetary limitation on recovery, but did not alter the liability of public officers, employees, and agents. It was then amended in 1975, requiring the public bodies to indemnify employees for acts or omissions occurring in the performance of a public duty, and extended to the damages limitations to the officers, employees, and agents. And again, that was a result of some case law decisions that were coming down in that time frame and some of the parties involved. And another example in the history of the Tort Claim Act itself was when, in 1991, the state actually requested that they eliminate entirely any claim against an officer, employee, or agent, and requesting that the sole cause of action be against a public entity. So that's not unusual. And other examples of 
sort of government intervention is the workers' comp statutory scheme, the wrongful death statute, the Good Samaritan statute. These are other examples of government intervention. The point is this. It's not an uncommon strategy for a case of this magnitude when the underlying constitutional issues directly arise from a legislatively created animal such as the Oregon Tort Claim Act. The issue then becomes what would pass constitutional muster. That's a difficult question. There's no guideposts in the Clark decision similar to, for example, the United States Supreme Court's decision in Campbell versus State Farm, where they laid out guideposts for calculating punitive damages based on a ratio between the compensatory damages and the punitive damages awarded. Here, there are no such guideposts. And again, Justice Bomber points out in his concurrence, the court has not articulated a precise test, and it probably is not possible to do so. So as with most issues of this magnitude, I guess the theme here is to stay tuned. We're in the middle rounds of a championship fight, and there'll be some more checks and balances probably between the legislature and the Oregon Supreme Court. Jeff, uh, assuming that the tort cap is raised, is there anything to stop plaintiffs from continuing to circumvent the cap by targeting individual employees rather than the public entity? Well, as we talked about, the statutory scheme was only declared unconstitutional as applied in the Clark case. So I would anticipate, uh, as Lloyd said, without a bright-line rule, I think they're going to see more and more of these challenges. Like many states, Oregon has a very talented and well-organized plaintiff's bar, and the Clark opinion has simply invited plaintiff's counsel to continually challenge any legislative fix And in the absence of a bright-line rule, I think we're going to see future challenges going forward. And Jeff, does this decision and any eventual outcomes have any national implications? Well, you know, Oregon, again, is not unique. I think by some counts, there might be as many as 38 other states that have similar remedy or open court clauses in their state constitution. And this is a battle that is being fought across the nation. I know that also in December, in addition to the Clark case, the Ohio Supreme Court decided a similar case. Oregon took its remedy clause from Indiana, at least their version of the remedy clause in 1851, and although it differs slightly, it shares many of the same characteristics. And I guess for those states that have a similar remedies clause, this might inform those court decisions, although I do note that Indiana has actually upheld similar caps. So state courts are going to do what it is that the state courts are going to do, regardless of similar provisions being interpreted differently. Jeff and Lloyd, thanks to you both for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure speaking with you both. Thank you. Thank you. We've just spoken with Jeff Eden and Lloyd Bernstein from the firm Bullivant Hauser Bailey in Portland, Oregon. And again, I do want to express that these answers were their personal opinions, and they do not reflect the opinions of their firm or the firm's clients. Thanks very much to Brendan Noonan for our communications team at AMBEST and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message. 
Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 